This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Laura Cathcart-Robbins, the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Stash, and host of the podcast, The Only One in the Room. Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited about this, and I really appreciate your bearing with us. This is our one of several attempts we've made to record, (laughs) so I'm very pleased that we're actually able to make it happen today. But I'm feeling good. I hope that you're feeling reasonably good. Uh, I feel great. Oh, even better. You're feeling great. And I hope that we're going to be able to be useful to a lot of strangers today. Me too. All right. Well, I will get us started. Uh, Our first letter writer is um, somebody who's dealing with difficulties at at their job, which I'm so... the, The last time that I had this type of job, it was just like when you know, it was 50-50 that somebody would have a smartphone versus a brick phone. Right. And so like just you didn't usually get a lot of texts from your boss. And that's changed so much in the last 10 years that I just, I, I really feel so, so, so sorry for everyone of this generation or anyone who's like involved with boss texting. Because that's just, your boss should never be able to text you ever. As I soon agree. as you leave your place of employment, your boss should forget you're alive. <laughs> Except for like, in terms of sending you your paycheck, obviously. Yeah. Anyways, that's enough back chatter. I will get into the letter. So the subject is part-time work, full-time problem. I'm a college student who's been working at the same part-time job for about a year now. It's the best job I've ever had. I endured a lot of sexual harassment and exhaustion at my other jobs as a teenager. This one is a small business owned and operated by women with lovely coworkers I've become very close with. But recently, my boss seems to have turned on me. My coworker sent me screenshots of the texts my boss was sending about me, saying really hurtful things. There's currently a lot of drama in our workplace, and my question today is, how do I approach this situation? I want to be nasty right back to my boss, but I really don't want to lose this job. Although on the flip side, maybe this environment isn't as great as I think it is. Do I fake it till I make it? Do I confront my boss at the expense of my coworker who secretly shared this information? I'm incredibly angry and I don't know how to carry on. Wow. I often 
read a letter like this and wish I had more details, but I think especially with this one, I wish so much I knew a little bit more about what the boss had said. Usually it's for prurient reasons, but I don't even mean that here. I just really can imagine this being such a wide range of possible comments that I almost don't know if it's better to sort of assume the worst or to assume the most innocuous version of things that the boss might have said. Do you have a sense of where you'd want to start? Well, I mean, this is a part-time job, right? This is not a career move for this person. That was the first thing that stood out to me. So Mm -hmm. how much does one endure for a part-time job versus how much does one endure for, you know, what might be entry level into the the corporation or the business where you want to rise. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think that's where I would start is, is that kind of metric of what's enough when it's a part-time job and how difficult would it be to get another part-time job wherever they are. And I know they say that this is the best job they've ever had, but they're in college. Yeah. So. And it's a low bar. They had some like two, maybe three terrible jobs in high school. Right, right, exactly. Um, I'm really big on not enduring, but I'm certainly all for like, you know, any relationship is compromise, including work. But compromising myself is something that I've learned not to do in a position like that. However, I agree with you. I think I need to know what the context, the subtext of those texts were it's hard. It's hard. These are things that should never have gotten to this person. And everybody gossips about everybody in an office workplace. Right. And that's, again, like one of the downsides of uh, an increasingly like text-based forms of communication Right, is, uh, you know, I'm sure when I was waiting tables, my bosses said at various times, like blowing off steam things about me that I'm glad I didn't have to hear. Yes. But that as long as, you know, there wasn't like a permanent record of it wouldn't necessarily have damaged our working relationship. But then you can also, you know, if we go and sort of uh, stretch fully into the hurtful and nasty elements, it could also be just genuinely awful stuff that even if it wasn't written down would have been a real game changer. Like if if the letter writer had just happened to overhear it one day, like restocking right. the, the closet. So I, I think like you, the good news here is that this is a part-time college job, which doesn't make it fun or easy but does give the letter writer more flexibility in terms of if you want to just go look for another job, you absolutely can. Um, Certainly I I think you're right to, to sort of question the environment here. Cause there's again, one, whatever your boss said to your colleagues, not great, but then also the fact that your colleague just sent that to you is also not amazing. Motivation, Right. Yeah, I don't know if you have much experience with this. I I don't have it in the sense of like direct colleagues, but I have certainly had some friends and more acquaintances in my life who really without prompting will send me something sort of apropos like of nothing and say like, I saw something really like horrible about you and I just thought you should know. And I just like that's always had to be followed up with, why did you think I needed to know that? Yeah. Don't do that again. Yeah. Uh, and we're probably not going to be friends after this because I I don't understand why you think this is valuable or good or something that I want to see. Like, where is this idea coming from? And I think more often than not, it's somebody who sort of delights in shit stirring, but yeah. wants plausible deniability. So they always look clean. Yeah, it's messy. This is, this is somebody who's messy, who sent that person their text 
Like this is not a, a helpful thing to do. Right. Because like best case scenario, if they were just genuinely concerned and they thought, you know, if I were the letter writer, I would want to know, then the thing to do would be wait until you see them in person and say, I know this is kind of hard because once someone lets you know that there's something to know about, you kind of want to know about. But the boss said something really messed up about you the other day over text. And I'm wondering if you want me to either give you a sort of generic breakdown so you don't have to know all the details or if you would like to see, I don't know, again, that wouldn't be amazing, but it would at least suggest that they were thinking about how this might affect you rather than sort of like, ooh, this is fantastic. I get to tell someone something awful to their face and I get to pretend like I'm doing them a favor at the same time. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think if these texts included information that spoke to this person was going to lose their job, Maybe there's a way not to share the whole text with them, but say, hey, our boss is really upset about you coming in late every day. And I don't want to reveal exactly how I know this, but I do know this. So you might want to watch that if you want to keep your job versus just sharing screenshots where the boss was saying really hurtful things. Mm -hmm. So I think my response is not to confront the boss, but I would let the coworker know that that wasn't helpful. (laughs) To share, to share that information. Yeah. And do you think that that would be better to do also over text, better to say in person? How would you encourage the letter writer to say it? Would it change depending on whether or not this was like a really close friend slash coworker or just someone that they got along with okay previously? Yeah. And I, I do note that they don't say friend. They definitely say coworker and they say it twice. I'm old school. I like, I don't like to go to bed with red in my ledger. I don't Mm -hmm. like anything unclean. I want everything to be clean every day. If possible, I would have a conversation because I think over text, there's so much room to misconstrue and then it's just messier then. So I would have a conversation and then I would start looking for another job. Yeah. That's what I would do. Yep. I think that's probably also what I would do too. And I think the only thing that I would add, again, letter writer, it's a little difficult without knowing more of the content of what your boss said. Mm -hmm. If it's possible, there's anything in it that while you might have hated the way that your boss said it might be true or helpful to reflect on, I would encourage you to do so. That doesn't mean you have to like wear a hair shirt or look through something that's like totally personal and underhanded. Like if it's just really awful derogatory stuff about you as a person please don't take this advice. But if it's like, if they're saying something about like lateness or the way that you've handled a task and they're just like venting in an inappropriately intense way, you know, look to see if there's anything that you can reflect on. And if there's not, don't worry about that. Um, I I think sometimes it can be helpful to separate the tone of criticism from the content of criticism, but then that usually applies more to criticism you receive directly rather than something someone has said over text to a colleague about you. So that actually might not really apply. But yeah, I think my advice would probably be, I would maybe even just text back the coworker and say, please don't send anything like this to me again. This is not something I need to know about. Yeah. Just so it's like matching, like it's it's written down right after it. They can see it. It stays in the same platform. It's not trying to get into a fight or saying like, why did you say this? Or like inviting more of a personal conversation. It's just calmly letting them know this was not helpful I'm not going to be giving you the plausible deniability that you were helping me out. Right. I love that. I love that. I agree. And, and you know, it's also a lesson for those of us 
not, it's actually not me, but people in the workforce to be really mindful about gossip and the impact of it. Because what the coworker was doing was gossiping, as was the boss, but the coworker was gossiping. And so that, you know, the impact of that can be, it's not pleasant for the receiver, you know, right? and and it's not helpful for the receiver and it can really hurt somebody. Right. This person could, you don't know what it can trigger in somebody else. So, yeah. And there's a real difference between like, if, if you're close friends with someone and you say, Hey, you've been, you know, someone's been saying you're a murderer or that you totaled their car. And I know that's factually untrue and possibly defamatory. And you should know this because you need to be able to protect yourself or defend yourself, or it could potentially affect your life. That's Mm -hmm. one thing. If it's just, I know someone who really doesn't like you and thinks the worst of you and talks smack about you. And I really want to tell you to see how you react and to feel powerful. But I don't like admitting that about myself. So I need to cover up that bad motive with a sweeter smelling one and pretend I'm doing it for your benefit. Yes. I really understand that process. I think that's an understandable human impulse. I can relate to it. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's very, very important to be putting that impulse to bed by the time you're reaching about middle school, high school. Yes. And especially by the time you're in your college years or beyond, you need to you need to be able to head that impulse off the second you see it coming up because it's just not actually helpful desire to inform. It's genuinely, I want to feel like a little scamp, but mm-hmm. also keep my hands clean. And it's just not good and not useful. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, don't confront your boss because the best thing that could happen would be that your boss would fire you. Right. There's just, uh, and there's no worker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's just not going to do you any good. And I hope that I don't know. I I don't, you probably can't get away with it nowadays, um, but I would really like to suggest like, don't give out your phone number the next time somebody hires you. Just be like, Uh, email me my schedule and I don't have a phone. That way they can never say, hey, can you come in on the weekend? We're kind of slammed. And no one's ever going to say, look at this weird text I read about you. Right. Right. I agree. Probably not possible, but if you can get away with it, try. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How do you think we're doing? How are you feeling? I, I think we're doing great. I think that our responses have been thoughtful and <laughs> <laughs> me too and we're i i believe that we're we're operating from this integral place and i think that's that's where i like to operate from anyway it's always good for me when i have an issue to have someone else's perspective on it it's eye opening most of the time so i love that you do this and and lend another perspective with that's to something that someone seems to have been dealing with kind of on their own for the most part. Yeah. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but we were talking a little bit um, before the show about your book, Stash, which I I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about. And I think in particular, uh, the way that you write about hiddenness and the delights of secrecy, as well as the, the, you know, deep and intense pain and how that sort of informs thinking about advising people on being direct while also reflecting on, man, it's really fun to cover up your own motives, keep secrets, 
tell tales, stir the pot, foster drama, and then leave town. I just, I, I mostly, I guess I wanted to say, uh, I relate deeply and and I admire it immensely the way that you talk about it. Not least the the part about weighing out a, a pill bottle and feeling like, guess the number of jelly beans in it. Just like, oh, I know how many are left in here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, the book is my debut memoir, Stash, My Life in Hiding. And it, it covers a 10-month a period of my life in the year 2008, during which I, I was addicted to Ambien, which is not something that most people get addicted to. And I had two young boys. I was ending a marriage. During the time that I write about, I'm the parent association president. I've just been asked to join the board at this very elite private school that my children attend. I live this Hollywood lifestyle and I end up going to treatment and um, looking to start a new relationship during this whole journey while I'm ending my marriage and kind of fighting to stay in my kids' lives. And the the hiding part, um, you know, even more so than than the addiction part was that journey that I started taking from authenticity, from being my authentic self at around five years old because it rubbed my stepfather the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something I carried out with me into the world where I just edited myself according to my surroundings. And that really left me at this place where I didn't know who I was anymore. And so by the time this addiction had a hold of me, my I was so far away from my authentic self because of all the lies and the the lies I told and the things that I hid, which is also kind of lying by omission and and so the the journey is also back toward my authentic self in the book. So I kind of cover the journey away from it and the journey back toward it. And then I cover divorce and, you know, custody and addiction and race and mm-hmm. and love. For whatever it's worth, uh, I had a great time abusing Ambien before I got sober. So just really? a big shout out to the mid-aughts. Uh, it wasn't <laughs> like, I, I wouldn't say it was like top of the list, but I definitely, I remember my college girlfriend and I would drink, take Ambien, have incredibly like, serious discussions about our relationship where we would like pledge to changing something or like a big argument how how we're gonna like handle her you know homophobic family or whatever and then the next day (laughs) remember none of it and i'd be like so upset i'd be like all right don't do it again today you know and then i would do it and then we would have the conversation again and then we would both forget and then she'd be like all right let's talk about it tonight but no one's gonna take ambien we'll both remember it and we just did this for like six months at a time it was oh that's hilarious those were heady days. They were just giving out Ambien like you wouldn't believe. Yes. Yes. It, they didn't know as much about it then. It was a brand new medication for me. I hadn't heard of it before it was prescribed for me. And I loved it. I loved mm. it. I loved it. I loved everything about it. it. I thought it was my solution. And then it wasn't. It was great. It solved a very specific problem. Yes. And that problem was, why isn't it tomorrow? Yes, um, but it didn't solve any other problems, and it usually introduced several more. Because then you would it would be the next day, and you would be in new places. Yes, with more or less of the stuff that you had with you the day before. Yeah, and you know, as a mom, it's just it's just not cool to have periods of time that you don't remember. Um, it's dangerous. It's bad for your kids. It's bad for your environment. It's definitely bad for a marriage. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, the addiction told me I had to keep taking it. And 
it was a ticking clock. I was either going to go one way or the other. And I ended up getting sober, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. I realized I was kind of making ambient sound uh, a little more fun than um, maybe, maybe would be best, but I'm not, I'm not too worried that anyone listening to the show is going to come away from our conversation thinking I should really, I should take more ambient. Yeah. <laughs> and it, like you said, it's not as easy to get or abuse now unless yeah. you do it, you know, um, off the internet, which is the difference. Yeah, unless you, you know, I guess really are willing to put your back into it and do some real work. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Like which I obviously did. like was the thing that I was the most afraid of um, was doing real work. Hence the like deep desire to time travel all of the time. Um, and, and that is, I think, one of the things that is so magical before it stops being magical about uh, pills, especially, but also just like drug abuse generally is just it lets you travel through time. It lets you decide, I wish it was Thursday. Mm-hmm. And then, bam, it's Thursday. And nothing else does that. Certainly mindfulness doesn't do it. Ma- mindfulness is the opposite of that. It's always like in early recovery when everyone's suggesting mindfulness, it's like that is the opposite of the thing that I want. Be acutely aware of the exact moment that I'm in for every moment that I'm in it. That is why I'm here. That is my problem. Right. It's painful. It's absolutely painful. And then, you know, it's... Like it's not anymore. Now it's, you know, 15 years later and I have a much different experience with it. But back then it was excruciating. Yeah. No, I mean, it is, again, one of those things that's so difficult to understand or accept the possibility uh, when you first encounter recovery and then only later in retrospect are you able to sort of realize like, oh, it is genuinely true that I can just live at the same rate of time as everybody else. There are ways to do that in a way that is not just like, I guess, sort of bearable without drugs, but meaningful, even sometimes fun and good. Um, mm-hmm. But it really does feel like if I can't do this, I can't do anything. And, and I have a tremendous desire to be present right now. And I'm so grateful mm-hmm. for being present, which I'd never thought would happen. It's so cheesy, but the whole like attitude of gratitude stuff, unfortunately... Yeah. It really does make just a huge world of difference. I agree. Yes. And I really wish it, that that weren't the case because it just sounds so like I stop know. hitting yourself or yeah. just think your way out of a broken ankle. And I, I don't want it to sound pat at all. But yeah, along with a few other tools and, and tricks of the trade, it is a huge, huge, huge uh, turnaround, I think. So... think this is a good way for us to segue into our next letter because I don't I don't know if you were struck by this as well but one of the things that I noticed about this letter is that it kind of opens with a fairly provocative question that just for the record I'm not going to answer it's like a request for a diagnosis which I'm not qualified or prepared to give anyone but then it sort of trails off like it describes a sort of thorny family dynamic and then there's no real question at the end which is slightly unusual people do usually end with right. one or a few questions. So I think once I read this letter, we can talk a little bit about what we feel like the letter writer was getting towards or trying to ask um, and, and whether or not we feel like we're prepared to answer that question or if we feel like maybe we should try to answer a different one. Right. So the subject line here is, don't take it personally. Am I autistic? And that's why I get confused by family and social etiquette. I'm just realizing this in my 40s. My family always called me too sensitive because I cry easily. 
My eldest half-brother has always been emotional in a violent, explosive, angry way. His birth mother left when he was two. When COVID started, he sent me an angry message on Facebook, so I blocked him after many years of anxiety attacks whenever we interacted on that platform. He didn't like that I sent a lightly annoyed text to his 22-year-old child, adult, right? About them ditching the family gathering. I was the only one that did Zoom when I was told they were going to do it as well. My older brothers see me as a princess because being a girl, it seemed like I got everything I wanted. During my teens and mid-twenties, I was in the same New Age religion, actually a cult, with my parents, while my non-religious brothers were trying to make it on their own in the real world without very much money and often using drugs or alcohol. My parents also fostered many special needs, emotionally unstable boys who tormented me. I was told to practice the mirror technique, but it never worked. So parents always found ways to separate me as well from my brothers. I found out recently that my mom was sexually abused by her eldest brother. She said she forgave him, but did move across the world. And that's the end of the letter. It's just sort of this increasing description of difficult family dynamics kind of ending on possible question about like, is this some of the origin? Do I trust my mom when she says that she feels something? And yeah, so again, just really want to start with, we are not going to be answering a question about whether or not this letter writer is autistic. I don't think you would need to answer that question to address most of what's going on here. I think it's pretty clear that this letter writer has a difficult family dynamic that would be difficult regardless of a diagnosis. But If that's something that you want to talk to a doctor about, talk to a doctor about it, not to us. Um, But beyond that sort of caveat, did you have a sense of where you thought this letter was sort of winding up? Yeah, I mean, I I wished it had ended in a question because I was trying to figure out what the question was as I was reading it and as you were reading it just now. I think what I understand is that this, this woman is kind of wondering, one, where she fits in her family dynamic, and two, why she is so impacted by it, and if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So I have a hard time when people say that someone is too sensitive. I don't like that. I think that is a damaging criticism. I, I I just don't like it. I don't like it when people are labeled too sensitive, especially because they cry easily. This person has an emotional response. Um, And it sounds like there's a lot of things to respond to in this family. And I think what I understand was like, after everything I've been through, and I'm speaking as her now, after everything I've been through, is it okay that, you know, I feel these things about my family? And so my answer to her would be yes. And, you know, part part of my whole life's journey was I was this very... I am a very prideful, self-sufficient. And the best thing I ever did in my life was ask for professional help. It really allowed me to see not just where others were wrong, but how my responses were damaging me. So I could look at those responses and then take action on them. I couldn't do anything about anybody else. But I could absolutely look at how I responded to these situations and sometimes take myself away from them. And if I couldn't take myself away from them, I learned different tools. So I think that's what my take on this was, is if you're wondering if it's if you're too much in these, if you're feeling too much, I think the answer is no. 
but I would definitely suggest getting help with, you know, channeling those feelings into something productive. Yeah. And I think so maybe part of what was going on in that first question, letter writer, that might be useful for you to reflect on is, is your hope in asking that question, like, if I were to seek out and find out, you know, whether or not I had an autism diagnosis, would, depending on like, if if I, you know, were, I, I don't know, like run through a series of diagnostic tests and I was told, no, we don't think you're on the spectrum. Would that help me or make things more difficult? If I heard yes, would that help me or make things more difficult? What would a potential diagnosis do for me in terms of how I understand myself, how I understand my family? Or is it more a question of if I had a diagnosis, do I think that relating to my family would be easier? Do I think they would treat me differently? So I, I wonder if those might be useful questions um, about why this is the question that's kind of come up for you. But yeah, the underlying questions, you know, if my family thinks I'm too sensitive, what do I do? Because usually if someone says you're too sensitive, they don't follow it up with, therefore, I'm going to be extra gentle with you. Right. <laughs> um, right. Usually that's the sort of prelude to, I'm going to keep doing something that I know upsets you. Mm-hmm. So if, if part of your question is, do I want to spend a little bit less time with my brothers um, or pull back a little bit or stop trying to have like the same fights over and over again, hoping they're going to be nicer to me this time? Um, is it okay to just sort of like protect my energy as they say sometimes online? That would be okay. Or if part of you feels like I'd actually really like to try to talk to them about it again, that's okay too. You're allowed to do that. I don't know that it's necessarily going to immediately give you the results that you want, but you're certainly allowed to, as an adult, say to your siblings, I would love to have a different kind of relationship, or I would love to talk a little bit about our relationship and whether we could possibly change it. But, you know, especially with your eldest half-brother, you say he's always been emotional in a really violent, explosive way. You used to have anxiety attacks whenever you interacted with him on Facebook. You blocked him. Sounds like to me that's not a relationship where you would be able to go and say, can we have a conversation about how we relate to each other? That would be like, kind, mutually respectful, uh, safe even. So I would maybe discourage you from having that conversation with him and just say, pull back from him as much as possible. You know, again, not that this was something that the letter writer asked a question about and none of it would have justified her brother's reaction, but I would maybe encourage you not to send lightly annoyed texts to any of your nieces or nephews if they decide not to go to a family event. Like, it's just... I don't know if someone's not going to show up to something and you're going to miss them. You can say like, I'm I'll miss you or I haven't gotten to see you lately and I'd love to catch up. That's pretty understandable. But if they're 22, they should be able to decide whether or not they're going to a family event without getting a scolding. So again, not that, that merited uh, getting reamed out by your brother, but I just think that was probably something I think you shouldn't have done. And I wonder if part of the reason you felt compelled to do that is maybe tied to the fact that it seems like you don't really like your family very much in a pretty understandable way. Do you maybe feel like you have to go to things and therefore if somebody else skips it, it reminds you that you actually don't have to do it either and that scares you and upsets you or you want to feel like, well, if I have to go, everyone has to go? Does that, Lori, you tell me, does that seem like I'm taking it too far or did that seem like a possible reading to you? No, I just had like a light bulb moment when you said that. It absolutely sounds like that. Yeah, I mean, the dynamic she describes doesn't sound like it's the way that it's going. It's going to be a healthy road. I mean, a chance for a healthy connection with her brother. Um, 
possibly with that 22-year-old adult child. And also, she seems to really want to kind of paint a picture so that we can feel compassion. Like Mm -hmm. she talks about, you know, they grew up without money, they used drugs and alcohol, and she grew up, you know, with, with her parents fostered many special needs, emotionally unstable boys. Are you familiar with the mirror technique? No, that also was not something, I mean, all I could think of was that scene in Duck Soup. Yes. uh, Where they pantomime each other. (laughs) I'm not really sure what that, it almost made it sound like they were suggesting if they torment you, torment them back by mirroring what they do. But that doesn't seem. That doesn't seem right. Right. Does it? Yeah. And she said it never worked. And I also wonder who suggested that. Maybe it was somebody outside of her family, but you know, it's. It really does sound like the wrestling might be exactly what you said. Like this is, I, I don't like to use the word toxic. You see, I'm struggling not to use certain words, but yeah. if if I'm going to use the word toxic, it would be for this. Like the, the dynamic might be toxic for her. Yeah. If, if she has to participate, then everybody does. <laughs> and, and maybe she doesn't, you know? And certainly, as you say, I mean, I, I, I like you, I think share an instinctive reluctance to use toxic just if only because I feel like there's usually a more um, detailed word that it can be replaced with Mm -hmm. but between the like being in a cult together and then the sort of asides about how her parents had it sounds like a pretty difficult time raising a number of boys with a lot of like really difficult issues but they also maybe sometimes overlooked the way that that affected the letter writer or or tried to compensate by treating her like a quote-unquote princess um, in a way that sort of fostered shared resentment, but also didn't result in them protecting her from torment, right? Like, while her brothers might have seen sort of princess treatment in terms of, I don't know, she got some bells and whistles that they didn't, I also see some serious, like, she's being tormented by a series of other boys, and they're saying, just practice the mirror technique, which is... Again, whatever the technique is, is not an appropriate response to a child being tormented by siblings and step-siblings. And so again, that sort of like veering at the end towards, well, my mom was abused, so maybe maybe I should be easier on her was the sort of implication, or maybe she needs me, or maybe it's not okay for me to be upset about something that happened when I was younger. And I guess I just really want to say, letter writer, you are allowed to talk to your doctor and a therapist or anyone else about curiosity about the possibility of an autism diagnosis. You're also allowed to reflect upon your family dynamics and whether or not it makes you feel good or healthy or safe. You can love your family and still also recognize you can't see them very often, or you might want to consider saying something to your mother and father at some point. Um, Again, I, I never want to just throw it out there like, just call up your parents one day and say, my childhood sucked and I hate you. I, I don't want to suggest that. But like, if you do ever want to say, Mom, I realize both that you probably had a lot on your plate when you were raising me. And I also, in the interest of our closeness now, want to be able to tell you something that was really hard for me. Not so that you'll just feel terrible and guilty, but so you can know me better and we can try to repair it. Can we have that conversation? I do think that's possible. Um, And I would hope that maybe they would be able to have it with you. Maybe not right away, but you could potentially consider it down the road. Or if you just want to pull back, pull back. But I think if you catch yourself wanting to scold your younger relatives for not joining in something that you find unpleasant, that's your sign to stop doing that and to step back. But your greater question of, is that why I don't understand my family etiquette? It sounds like your family has pretty disordered etiquette. So I think 
probably it's not because of a potential diagnosis. I think you have a pretty dysfunctional family. Doesn't mean they can't be good people who love you, just that there's a lot of dysfunction there. And then I can't speak to social etiquette beyond that just because that didn't come into the letter here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think family etiquette is never, ever one size fits all. But Mm -hmm. I agree with you. This sounds particularly complex. And so, yeah, I would not jump to a diagnosis to wonder if that's the reason you're confused by it. Yeah. Um, It sounds confusing. Yeah, you know, and letter writer, if you if you hear this, please write back. Um, I would love to hear if if there was another question or two that you maybe didn't get a chance to include the first time. If you felt like this answered some of your concerns, if you feel like you know what direction you want to move in next, I just really, really wish you all the best, and and I just hope that whatever uh, you prioritize next, it's something that feels good and manageable and and protective of your own feelings and your own experiences. That's something that I would really want for you. I have a quick update before I let us both go. This is from the letter writer who wrote in a few months ago with a letter called Conflicted and Demoralized, um, who had a sort of ongoing difficult relationship that was sort of on and off with a guy who never really knew when to commit or let go. I'm the author of Conflicted and Demoralized. I ended up accepting my dream job. When I told my boyfriend, he cheerfully replied that we could stay together despite the distance and he could just come see me when he had the time. I told him that I wasn't interested. Shortly after that, I ended up talking to a guy on a dating app who became my new partner and we're still going strong nine months later. Thank you so much for your advice. Thank you so much for the update. I love this. New job, new state, new boyfriend. Uh, May all updates come with such specific and uh, quantifiable improvements. Yeah, and it's really concise, too. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. It's so difficult to be concise about our own lives. I myself can't do it. Um, Laura, thank you so much again for coming and joining me on the show today. Would you let our listeners know perhaps where they could find your memoir uh, if they wanted to hear a little bit more? Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Stash My Life in Hiding is is really available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, B&B. But I would encourage you to order it from your local independent bookstore because independent bookstores are dying and I want to keep them around. They will order it and ship it to you or keep it there for you and you can come pick it up. Well, thank you again so much and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening.
And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I I think part of what you were speaking about earlier, too, has to do with, like, this idea in friendships of how comfortable you are with someone else and what comfortable looks like. And oftentimes people use comfortable as sort of shorthand for familiar Mm -hmm. or taking liberties that a guest or a new acquaintance wouldn't be allowed to take. And when that works and everyone's kind of firing on the same cylinders or on the same page, it's beautiful. And when someone gets too comfortable and you only realize it when you think, oh no, you're comfortable with something I need you not ever to be comfortable about, that can feel really, really fraught. It's a little bit like asking someone to leave your house. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.